Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. It would be interesting if Jesus were to come to earth and enter into a therapist's office. And I was just trying to imagine the sort of conversation that would be had. And I'm going to give a bit of a caricature here, but probably it would be something like the therapist asking Jesus, tell me about your childhood. And we know from the New Testament that Jesus' reply would be something of the sort, well, in my childhood, I had always to be about my father's business. Always? Always. So the therapist jots down on his notepad, didn't have the opportunity to just be a kid. <laughs> Tell me something about this father that you mentioned. How was your relationship with your father? Oh, I, I only do the will of my father. Unhealthy codependence. Jesus, how do you practice self-care? Well, my father provides for me all that I need. He's my shepherd. I lack nothing at all. The therapist could reply, well, certainly, yes, but considering how many crowds you attend to, how much you counsel, how much you pour out and help others, you also need relationships that are pouring into your love tank. You have a psychological need for affection, and unless that need is met, you're not going to be able to keep on loving others. And by the way, I would recommend that you find a different group to put around you because I've heard of these disciples of yours. They are not filling your love tank at all. I've heard that in the hour of your greatest need, they didn't love you. They all abandoned you. These are toxic people, unhelpful to you, and eventually you're going to run out of steam because you're not having people pour in and meet the psychological need that you have for love. Now, praise God, Jesus never saw a therapist. <laughs> Because instead, this was Jesus' attitude given in John 13, 1. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Whether or not they loved him back. Now you are this man's follower, Jesus. And we do live today where the common view that's proclaimed very loudly in the world is, among other things, you can't be expected to love other people unless you have your own psychological need for affection met regularly. And a love tank is often sort of the picture that's used. You have a love tank and it gets empty and you need it filled by other people loving you. And if that happens, then you can love other people. So if your husband loves you, then you're filled up to be able to love your husband. And if your friends in small group love you, you're filled up and can love your friends in small group, the other church members, the co whoever it is. That's the analogy that really resonates with us. And there are persons who, and some of them very sincere believers whom we love, who are what we would call integrationists in counseling, meaning they take what the Bible teaches together with what they consider insights of modern psychology, and they will bring them together and attempt to integrate them. 
And there are many of that sort as Christian counselors who will say, yes, you have a love tank, you have a psychological need for love, and if you're blowing up at others and not loving the people around you, well, if you can trace that back to a lack of love that you're receiving from your childhood or today, in some way that semi-justifies that. After all, some, I'm not making this up, some legitimately argue after all, when you look in the Bible, there are commands that we love one another. And if that's a command for Christian fellowship, that suggests that we need love from one another to function. A biblical counselor named Ed Welch responds to that with these words. But what about the fact that Scripture commands us to love each other? Doesn't that mean we need love? Not necessarily. More accurately, it means that we need to love, rather than that we have a psychological deficit that must be filled with love. I hope you can see that this was very much the attitude of Jesus in his earthly life. Jesus did not walk around feeling a deficit of love. Love me, because he received very little love, even from the people who were closest to him. His disciples fumbled along. They failed him in his moment of need. They didn't understand who he was or what he had come to do. And in the end, they all abandoned him. His own family thought he had lost his mind. That's not very good family support that he was receiving. And the crowds kind of loved him until he spoke words they didn't like. Then they cried, crucify him, put him on a cross, flayed him, slayed him. He died. So according to modern standards, his love tank was not full enough to give. And yet Jesus lived a life of giving and giving and loving and loving and giving and giving more than anyone who has ever lived on this earth. Sort of blowing out of the water this modern conception we have that I'll love you once you love me. Instead, you do have a, you could even call it a psychological need if you want, but it's really a spiritual need. You have a need when it comes to love. You need to love others. You can't go without that. You can go without the love of others. You cannot, as a Christian, go without loving others. Your food, like Jesus, must be to do the will of my Father. And His will is that you love other believers. You don't need something from the believers in your life. You don't. It's so wonderful when you receive affection and love. I hope that is the sort of community we are and growing to be more and more. But what you need is to love others. It's a deep need that you have. We're going to see this and the reason for this. How can this be possible? How can you love others your whole life whether or not you feel you're receiving love? How is that possible? This passage answers that question. This is 1 John chapter 4. Let's see what the Apostle John says, not only about our call and duty to love each other, but the source of where that love comes from. Start in verse 7 with me. Beloved, let us love one another. For love Where's it from? Love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love 
does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Why do you, child of God, love other people? It is not because of other people. It is because of God. We do not love because we are loved by people. We love because we are loved by God. I don't love you because you're loving. I love you because God is not only loving, God is love. It's a defining characteristic of God. And if I'm born of God, that's all that I need to fill my love tank. I will love. I must love. You can see how Christianity is remarkable in this regard. Because of that great command Jesus gave on the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. And people are still saying that today. Every religion, every therapist, every person, of course love your neighbor. But Jesus said, but I want to tell you this, love your enemy. Meaning, you find someone who doesn't love you, and you love them. How can you do that? How can you do that your whole life? Because God loves you. Because God is love. Our love comes from God. All love comes from God. That's what he says. Love is from God. And God is love. So what we're looking at this morning in this passage is, of course, this duty we have. He says, we ought to love each other. He begins the passage, beloved, let's love one another. So there's a duty upon you that you have to love others. And you can't be selective. You got to love everybody. He's focused, especially on believers. You've got to love every believer you encounter. But that is a completely impossible task. And so what he gives us in this passage, in the larger piece of it, is the basis of your love. Where does your love come from? How can you live a life sacrificially giving, giving, even when others don't give back, even when others offend you, even when it gets very difficult, even when the sacrifice pinches your flesh? How do you keep living a life that gives and doesn't suck up on itself and disappear in a hole? How do you keep giving? How do you keep loving? He tells us in this passage, the source is not the love of other people. The source is God. So we're going to see the basis of our love, God, and then we're going to see our duty, which is to love. So let's start with the basis. That's most of this passage. The basis is God's love. Then we'll get to your love after that. 
Now John begins with that command, beloved, let us love one another, and we're going to return to that when we come to our duty to love each other. But for now, let's just look at what comes right after. He explains why or how you are going to love other people. For, he says, love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The apostle could have put any number of motivators after four. Let's love each other for it feels good to love each other. That's true. Better than hating each other. Love each other for it will make certain parts of your life easier. That's also true. Love each other for it's a good testimony to outsiders. Also true. Those would be true things. When you look out into the world, we may not always phrase it this way, but many, many people in the world are trying to figure out this mystery of how do you motivate human love. Politicians wonder this. They want their people to have a sense of unity. They don't want their people all divided, especially now in our nation where there's a lot of division. Politicians are trying to figure out, people are trying to figure out, how do you reconcile, how do you promote a unity in a country that is so divided? We have, of course, New Harmony, not very far from here, and many of you are aware that New Harmony began as an experiment by a Welshman who came here in the early 1800s, and he wanted to create a sort of utopia where things were scientifically engineered to promote unity and joy and prosperity. Unfortunately, that experiment lasted only two years, and it didn't promote those things. But that was a political attempt to motivate human love. International peace workers are trying to figure this out, going into difficult parts of the world where there's armed conflict between groups of people. How do you help people who have a hate that is calcified over generations for each other to reconcile and love each other instead, or at least not hate each other? Parents want their children to get along. You want your kids to be best friends. Teachers want their students to love each other. John Lennon himself saying, all you need is love. And it was a very sad thing that in his own life, love did not characterize all of his relationships. Unfortunately, there's a lot of tension and strain in his relationships. The fact is, there is no basis that can motivate human love efficiently and long-term, except the one that is given in our text. God. God. God's love is the only firm and lasting basis for you to live a life that is filled with love for others when it gets hard and not to give up. It has to be your sense of the love of God. Jesus himself, when speaking to the Jewish people, said that the devil is a murderer and a liar, and therefore that murder and lies come from the devil, and those who are of the devil do his will by murdering and lying. In the same way, God is love, and those who come from God love other people. His love, his being as a God of love, is the basis. Now, John puts it positively and negatively in our text. Positively, he says, if you are born of God, you will love. 
because there's a family resemblance. And then he puts it negatively and says, if you are not born of God, then we wouldn't expect to find enduring, lasting life of sacrificial love for others when it's hard. God, the God who is love, is the basis of a true and lasting life of love. What's interesting in our text is you could really take the first four words and they would be a fitting summary of the whole passage. He says, Beloved one, let us love. And John is using the word beloved, meaning I love you. It's a sort of a term of affection. But it's also true, and John would know this, that those he's writing to as believers are beloved of God. That is the point of our text. Beloved, you're beloved. You are beloved of God. Love. Beloved, love. In the Greek, it's actually two words, so it's even easier. Beloved, love. Why do you love? Because you're beloved. If you're beloved, what do you do? You love. The basis is beloved. The basis is that God loves you and God is love. And if you are of God, then you love. Beloved, let us love. If you remember no more of this passage, just remember the first four words. You can memorize that. Memorize that as your memory verse. Beloved, let us love. There's our duty and there's the basis of why we do it. Maybe we're being a little bit too vague here, so I guess it's time to get more specific. Everybody talks about the love of God. <laughs> and even people who've never read the Bible know that God is love. But what that means, everybody has different ideas about. Thankfully for us, in this passage, John himself now, in our text, gives an aside. It's sort of a side point. He's been talking about your duty to love. Let's love each other. It's from God. Let's love each other. And now he takes an aside in the next two verses because he wants to make really clear what we mean when we say God is love. It doesn't just mean anything. And he wants to give the most clear and explicit evidence of God's love ever given. And he does it right here in verses 9 and 10. We say, okay, what does it mean that God is love? Well, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you want to know what God's love is and see it clearly? Then in this it was made manifest, meaning you can see it. There it is, out in the open, not hidden up in heaven, right there. What, what is God's love? In this is love. And in both cases, both verses point to the same reality. God the Father sending his only begotten beloved son into the sin-cursed world to go up to the cross to take the curse of sin upon himself to suffer and to die. Why? So that we might live. He takes our curse and we get his blessing. He takes our sin and we get his righteousness. That is the best display of God's love. So we're going to take just a moment and consider these two verses because, again, if we're saying that the basis of your love for others is the love of God for you, then if you're not dwelling in the love of God for you, you're not going to love others well. It's not going to happen. So let's just take a moment in these two verses. What a great opportunity to just meditate on the love God has for us. 
So look at these two verses and notice first that God is the one who is described as loving. Sometimes we fall into a mistaken way of thinking that says, Jesus, he's the good God. He's the New Testament God who comes in and that old God of wrath of the Old Testament, you know, the Father, he's up there, but he's wrathful and angry at you because of your sin, which is true. And therefore, Jesus has to step in because he's the good one. He's the nice one. And he steps in and he, propitiation in our text, satisfies God's wrath. Oh, Thank you, Jesus. Otherwise, the angry God would have destroyed us. You understand that you are monotheists? There are not two or three gods. There's just one God. Who purposed the death of Christ so that you may live? Notice in our text in verses 9 and 10, he does not put the emphasis even on Jesus. He puts the emphasis on God. You want to see the love of God? This is the love of God. That God sent his son. Now Jesus in dying on the cross as the second person of the Godhead, certainly Jesus loves you very much. Keep singing that song, Jesus loves me. It's entirely true. And yet John wants to put an emphasis on this fact that God, here God the Father, God the Father sent the son. It was an agreement made in eternity past, if you wish to think of it that way. The Father says, you are going into the world. The Son perfectly agrees and the Spirit will be sent afterward. But it is God who sends His Son into the world. So I don't know what your thoughts about God are. When God thinks of you, is He just severely disappointed at how you've turned out? <laughs> well, here's love. It's not that you love God, but it's that God loves you. How do you know that? He sent his son into the world so you may live. If you're a believer, God himself loves you deeply. He made it very clear by sending his son into the world. As A.W. Pink, the old author, put it, Christ died not in order to make God love us, but because he did love his people. Calvary, Pink says, is the supreme demonstration of divine love. Whenever you're tempted to doubt the love of God, Christian reader, go back to Calvary. So first, God loves you. It's an amazing thing. Secondly, what does God do in his love? He sent his only son to die for you. You may remember in reading the story of Abraham when he is asked to do the impossible, to take his son Isaac up onto a mountain to sacrifice him. God specifically says to Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. As if he couldn't make it more clear, this is hard and painful. And yet those same words could in some sense be applied to God. God, if you're going to save humanity, if you're going to save these people in this room, you can't just throw a couple copper coins into a beggar's cup. No, take now your son. Your only son, whom you love, Jesus, up to that mountain Calvary and sacrifice him there. Abraham was spared that pain and God the Father was not. He chose willingly in love that Jesus would die, his only son, so that you may be saved. That is the third point. Look at God's intention. So that we might live through him. 
Some of you right now are encountering trial after trial and seeing a lot of the hardship of life, pain after pain, like Job's servants knocking one after another. And at some point, the devil's intention is to wear you down and in a weak moment, have you think, if God really loves you, he wouldn't let this happen. An earthly father wouldn't let this much horrible stuff happen to his son whom he loves. So why would a heavenly father allow so many horrible things to happen to you? This passage says, you need to go look at the cross again. God doesn't promise that you'll be spared all the difficulties of this life. But when you look at the cross, God's intention in the cross is good. That we may live through him. The cross spares us for eternity. Fourth, in this text, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. God's love is so strong and powerful, it's not dependent on your love. Jesus told His earthly followers, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You might say, well, it seems only fair that I should have to choose Jesus before he chooses me. Who's he to just come and choose me like that? <laughs> but that's love. That's love. He works in your heart so you choose him as well, certainly. But he takes the initiative. It's not that we love God. That's not the definition of love. Look it up in the spiritual dictionary. It's not your picture. It's not that we love God so greatly. Wow, look at our love. It's that even when we didn't love God, He sent His Son when we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Paul says, that's how you know love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this, God's love is made clear to us. What part did we play in Jesus coming to the earth? Well, um, you did not exist, so good job. <laughs> you didn't ask God to do it. You didn't request it. And even when you finally did exist 2,000 years later, you didn't care. You wouldn't have asked God to do it. He did it all on his own out of a love that he felt for us even before we existed, amazingly. And fifth and finally, in thinking of God's love, John says, God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You might say, that doesn't sound lovey-dovey. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> propitiation. Someone's angry, and they're appeased. That's propitiation. How is Jesus the propitiation for our sins? God is righteous. We sinned against him. God is rightly angry at sin. He's got to be, or he's not just. <gasps> And he's going to pour out upon us like he did on Sodom and Gomorrah, the full fury of his wrath in fire and brimstone. It is right of him to do it. But before he does, here interposes Jesus whom he sent. And Christ has agreed to take every bit of fire, every piece of brimstone upon his own head. And God pours it out on Calvary, and there you are standing just in the shadow of the cross behind it, with the flames being absorbed by Christ instead of you. That is hell, compacted and pressed into a person in the span of three hours. And it's your hell, and it's being received willingly by Christ. He said, no one puts me here, I go of my own will, receives the wrath of God. The father, Isaiah says, was pleased to crush him with a crushing that you now will never know. 
And at the end of it all, Jesus cries, it is finished. As the last bit of fire falls from the sky, it's absorbed in Jesus. He gives up the spirit. He is dead. And now you look into the sky and it's no longer dark. There's no longer fire. What is there for you? A rainbow? The promise of God's mercy? Blue skies? It's clear. Birds are chirping. You have life, have it abundantly, have eternal life. There is no wrath remaining for you. That, God says, that is love. That is love. Your rom-coms are fine, but they're not love. (laughs) That is love. That God would give his son to absorb that wrath, to be a propitiation in his love so that he may remain a just, righteous God and yet extend his arms and bring you to his bosom. Behold what manner of love. So, think about that person in your small group or your Bible study or church who offended you. They offended you. You know who I'm talking about? (laughs) You know that person in your life? We all have one probably. You've offended someone and they've offended you and they're a believer. And you're standing there behind the cross and all the wrath that you deserve is gone. And now here comes someone and they snub you. God took the initiative when you didn't love him and did everything love required to bring you to himself. Now what are you going to do about that person Are you going to go home and sit in a dark corner and fume about how they offended your pride, how they disappointed you, how they have upset you, how they did wrong, and maybe they legitimately did wrong? Are you going to sit there and dwell and dwell and dwell on that? If you go home and you dwell and dwell and dwell on bitterness, do you know what will come out in your life? Bitterness. Bitterness. Bitterness not love. But if you stay in the shadow of the cross and you say, in this is love, God's love. He's taken all my wrath. I have nothing to fear. I have eternity. I've God himself because God, when I didn't ask for it, when I was offending him deeply by my life in full rebellion, did all of this to spare me and bring me to himself. If you go home and you think on that and think on that and think on that, you know what will come out in your life? love. You will forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. You will be tender-hearted. You will be merciful. You will give the grace that is necessary in any human relationship for it to flourish and function at all. Now, there are some cases where someone has offended you in a severe manner, and it might require some wisdom to know how we handle that. If there's been abuse, it doesn't mean you go right back into abuse, be abused again might need to be reported to police. So there are things that we may need to do in wisdom, but that doesn't change the fact that no matter what the offense, no matter how great, if it's a believer to a believer, this passage is saying that the basis of your love for every other believer is what you see on Calvary. It is not the other believer. It is not that they finally come to their senses and see things your way and realize how wrong they've done things. It's not that. Did Christ die upon a cross? 
then you are called on that basis to love others as we will see. And sometimes it will feel impossible to love someone who's wronged you. Sometimes you have a relationship and they're usually the ones that are the richest. Why does this happen? Probably Satan. They're usually the relationships that are the richest and then over time there's either a big event or sometimes there's not even a big event and you just feel that relationship souring. Have you ever felt that? And it makes you so sad. Why is this souring? Your end, their end, who knows? Sometimes you feel that happening. You know, that doesn't have to end in death. <laughs> that relationship can be restored. You can continue loving that person entirely, fully. Because your love is not built on that relationship. It's not built on them. It's built upon God. It's built upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it can stand all those trials. You just keep loving, loving. If you feel some of that bitterness towards someone, number one, if it's a big thing, go to them right away and work toward reconciling it. I know it's awkward. Just do it. Jesus says, leave your gift on the altar. Go do it. If it's a small enough offense, you can overlook it in love. Overlook it, but then you really have to overlook it. More than anything, look to Christ. Look to him upon the cross. Remember his gospel. Remember God's love for you over and over and over. And out of that will flow your own love. And it is to your own love that we're now turning in this message. So there is God's love, the basis of your love. But as we've already hinted at, it is a basis of your love. Now we move from God's love, which undergirds everything to the fact that you have to get to the business of loving. It's your duty. Look at this in the text. We already saw it in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. That's not like concessive or anything. That's a command. We have to do this. We have to love each other. If you jump down to verse 11, right after the aside focused on God's love, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here is the great ought. You ought to love other people. But it is not a naked ought. It's not an ought all by itself. It's not Mount Sinai ought saying, boom, you ought to do this. You say, I can't. Too bad. It's not like that. This passage breathes life. It's like the Garden of Solomon in the Song of Solomon, breathing out life. It's if God so loved us, we ought to love each other. Now, this is a passage with a so that's just like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. And when we first read that as English speakers, we usually think, so means God so, so, so much loved the world, but that's not actually what he's saying. <laughs> Jesus is saying, for God loved the world in this way, thus, so, thus. How? That he sent his son. Same as here. And what you find here is, if God so loved us, not like, oh, he so loved us, but it's like this. How did he love us? He sent his son to die, just like he said in the verses before. I can't stress enough how important it is to perform the duty of Christian love, and it is a duty, in full view of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I say that because you know, you've been at this Christian life for a little while, and you know that the call to love one another, which is our primary duty outside of worship to God, 
it's not easy. Is it easy? Is it easy for any of us? It's not easy to love other people. Sometimes it's nice, and other times it hurts. To love one another, what is that requiring from you? It's not something that you can schedule as one day of your week, Tuesday, is going to be your day of loving other believers. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's not, they know. It's not going to happen. And it's not something you can add on to your life after you've taken care of yourself, after you've done appropriate self-care, after you've got all your ducks in a row, after your finances are perfectly established, then you look and go, maybe there's someone who needs something. That's not Christian love. Christian love is loving others by doing whatever it takes for them to flourish. Whatever it takes for them to do well. Jesus was willing to go all the way to the cross that we might live. If he would have gone halfway to the cross and said, oh, I've done enough, I've healed all these diseases, all of us would be in hell forever. Jesus went all the way to the cross to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did what love required that we might live. And now, if you're living a loving life, you're going to look around you and there's going to be very interrupting needs from believers that will press themselves into your life. And if you're really going to love, you're going to have to lose some sleep. If you're really going to love others when needs arise, you're not going to be able just to schedule it when it's convenient for you. You're going to get the call in the middle of the night when it's not convenient for you, that there's been an emergency and someone needs your help. If you're really going to love others, you're going to have to give not just what's easy to give, but what's hard to give. If you're really going to love others when those relationships sour or there's conflict, you're going to have to, when everything within you is telling you, get out of there, run, it's getting awkward, I'm out of here, you're going to have to choose to jump into the situation, to engage, to pursue. That hurts and that is hard. That's Christian love. You're going to involve yourself with someone struggling. Even as you're living a busy life, you got kids, you got a job, you got so much going on, you can barely survive as it is. And then you encounter a believer who's really struggling with an addiction. And you know if you get involved, it's going to be messy. It's going to take a lot of your time. They might not even appreciate your help. And Christian love says, well, too bad. Get in. You can't not get involved. Get involved. They're right there. You have to. So if you try to take, in verse 11, this ought, we ought to love each other, and you just take it by itself, it will crush you. You're not going to last. It's not going to work. It's too much. It requires everything of you. If it's just a booming command, love, that's too much. But that's not what it is in this passage. Beloved, if God so loved us, let's love each other. Beloved, Let's love one another for love comes from God. There are many Christians who have tried to lessen the weight of the love command by just stuffing love into certain easy, organizable boxes. Have you ever done that? So you say, okay, as long as I tick off these boxes, be at church more than I'm not at church. Okay, check. Do that. As long as I smile and say hi to people in the hallways, I'm being loving. As long as I give a certain percent of my money away, I'm being loving. And then, you know, when you're at the drive-thru, you want to round up for charity? Okay, I'll round up for charity. And if I've done those, I've done my loving others, and I'm good, and now I can take care of myself. 
No. It's not Christian love. Love knows no bounds. That's why the ought all by itself is too much. The ought is you ought to give everything in your life for the good of all believers around you. That's why he says and has to say, if you're going to do that, it has to be on this basis. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I know I said in the introduction that you don't have a psychological need to be loved by others before you can love them, and I do stand by that. You do need to be loved in order to love. But the issue I'm correcting is that the love you need comes entirely from God. If God so loved you, did he? Did he? He did. Then, the text, you ought but it's a different ought now. Oh, he loved me this much. Then you ought to love others, shouldn't you? He loves, shouldn't you love? He loved to the point of death. Shouldn't you love to the point of sacrifice? This is why you're in your home and your husband does that thing again that he always does, okay? And you've tried to tell him, but he doesn't listen. So he did it again. Oh my goodness. And so you're getting frustrated. Can you love him? Not if he doesn't listen to him. Not if there's not communication and he's not listening you can love him. I'm not just saying that because I'm a husband. Let's reverse that. Okay, your wife, she does that thing. Can you believe that thing again? Again? Like, how could this be? Does she not see that? You can't love her. You need to give her the cold shoulder. Let her feel the suffering that she is causing to you. Give her that cold shoulder. Talk to her less until she feels that when she repents, then, okay, coming in with love. No. Get rid of the cold shoulder. You don't need a cold shoulder. You need a warm embrace. You can love your wife. She doesn't have to fill up your love tank. Men, can I talk to you? You can love your wife without her filling up your love tank. Your love tank is filled by God. Your roommate, there are all the dishes sitting in the sink. You'll love your roommate when they get it together and do at least some of the dishes. <laughs> no. You can love your roommate still. Now, this is still very difficult. We ought to love each other. Okay, husbands, we're still smarting from that wound. Oh, man, how are we going to do that? I want to, do, I want to love my wife, but that can be hard. Well, you see, even in our passage, as we get to the very last line, he doesn't just appeal to you to love others on the basis of God's love, but he shows there's a power available to you to do it. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God if we love one another God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Even after you've seen God's love in the gospel, it still can be hard to love others well. So John concludes by pointing you to the fact that when you're loving others well, God is there. It's the only way you can do it. Say, I don't see him. Well, no one has ever seen God. You'd be dead. He's invisible. But you can be sure he's there. If you love others, God is there loving others through you. You have the power of the Holy Spirit within you so that you can love others. It's his love perfected in you as you love others. It's the point that he is making here. God is not simply at a distance this morning yelling to you, love each other, children. Children, get along, as we sometimes do. He's not doing that. He is there in the midst of his children. 
helping us, instructing us, guiding us, correcting us, working all things together, empowering us directly and indirectly, giving us the encouraging word when we need it, everything to enable us to do this impossible task of loving one another to the point of pain and sacrifice with joy can only be done with God's involvement. And he says, God is involved. He's not far away. He takes your hand. He says, you see that messy situation that with all your soul you want to avoid? And he takes your hand. He says, don't be afraid. Stop being afraid. I'm right here. I'm with you. And I'll go with you. He said, well, if I get involved, I've offended them. I get involved, maybe I'll offend them worse. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. There's a real sense in which when we love others, it's God loving others through us. You've not seen God, but he's there. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And you and I can say, we've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who love, but Christ who loves through us. Your aim in all your interactions with believers, whether that's a small group, whether that's just in passing in hallways here, at a Bible study, meeting at a coffee shop, going to someone's house. You see believers and your primary goal is that that person would leave that interaction. Sometimes it's a tough love, but in the end that they would leave the interaction saying, wow, God is love. So let's love one another, even when it's hard. Why? Because God loves us. <laughs>